This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. We're closing in on the MLB playoffs, the year after the Cubs made history by winning their first World Series since 1908. If you're a baseball fan, you know the 2017 season has had its own share of exciting teams and storylines. The Cleveland Indians are trying to make their way back to the World Series, and they've made a little history of their own, winning 22 games in a row. The Los Angeles Dodgers raced out to what seemed like an impossibly large lead in the race for the NL West, only to come crashing back down to earth with the franchise's longest losing streak in 73 years, which means the last time they lost that many games was when they were in Brooklyn, I'm guessing. Meanwhile, the Astros emerged as one of the hottest teams in the American League this summer, but suddenly found themselves facing questions bigger than their pitching rotation after Hurricane Harvey left the city of Houston devastated with a long road to recovery. ESPN writers Tim Kuhn, David Fleming, and Wright Thompson were sent out to cover these teams and the improbable events leading up to baseball's postseason. Tim spent time with the Dodgers, seesawing between the team's dramatic swings and fortune, while Wright camped out in the Indians' clubhouse as the team tried to do anything other than pay attention to their win streak. And David joined the Astros as the team witnessed a historic storm and could only wonder what awaits them at home. So in today's show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Tim, David, and Wright are going to sit down to talk about what it's like to embed yourself with a team while trying to follow a story that could change almost daily. Before we jump in, a friendly reminder, if you like Double Truck Stories, do us a favor real quick and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast service you listen to most of your favorite shows on. And without further ado, here's Tim, David, and Wright. All right, and I am joined now by ESPN senior writers Tim Kuhn, David Fleming, and Wright Thompson, who spent uh, time this fall chasing some of MLB's hottest playoff-bound teams. Gentlemen, thank you for being on the show. Yep. Hey, thanks for having me. So to start off with, it seems like each of you guys had a different uh, mission here, whether it was following the Indians, the Dodgers, or the Astros. And I'm wondering, when you got this assignment, what what was the thing that you were trying to get to the heart of? What was sort of the, the issue or or perhaps the notion that you wanted to chase in your story? Tim, let's start with you. Yeah. With, with, the, with the Dodgers, uh, you know, it was the idea was to just go out and try to capture this team that was on at that time a record pace. Uh, this was... This was like the second week of August, and and the idea of them surpassing 116 wins was was actually real. You know, they were they were just they couldn't lose. They had won 43 out of 50 games, which hadn't been done since 1912, and uh, it all seemed like this just one big happy family. You know, these guys they were everything was working. So during the the first 11 games I spent with them, that was the theme because things continued to work. Uh, wrote a story that uh, that would have looked really silly had it been been published because it was about those days and in those days following those days they really hit the skids and they were almost historically bad you know they lost 11 in a row and 16 out of 17 and so so what happened there was that that you know I I had to go back and the decision was made like you know we we have to sort of we we have to 
capture this side of this team. So uh, the, the original story I wrote had to be scrapped and a, you know, sort of uh, a combo story of, of two different kinds of streaks had to, had to, uh, had to be written. And what, what happened there was it, it so I had to sort of, um, I had to combine these things and, and answer, you know, the first, the first go around, we were answering the question of, of how, how does this happen? How does this team sort of, uh, you know, swallow all of its collective ego for the, or its individual ego for the collective good. And, and then, and then the second time around, it had to be looking at, at uh, how, how it all fell apart and how a team that good could suddenly be this bad. So that was, you know, I mean, that was the, the primary challenge of this was to sort of, combine those those two things and still you know be writing about the same people in the same team so tim were you i i want to know about the the phone call from the office where it's like <laughs> it's like you know it's coming right in there like you know you have to go back out but were you holding yeah. out hope until the very last well you know I, maybe... I i have to say i i probably developed an unnatural uh uh, connection to the Dodgers games every night. I was watching, you know, like, come on, guys. It, it was the classic case of rooting for myself, you know. Um, yeah. And, and it, uh, but at some point, it was like, you know, forget it. You know, this is this is this isn't changing. You know, when 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 they get swept by the by the Padres, you're thinking, okay, the, the time has come. It's there's no denying it now. So, so yeah, it was it was sort of, uh, you know. When the phone rang, it was sort of like, okay, I, uh, we both know what this, where this is le- is leading. So, um, I, I may have already purchased a, a, a flight by that point. So, um, <laughs> it, it, well, it kind of got to the point where I knew that I had to go out and do it. You know, it wasn't like somebody dictating it. It was like, look, what I just wrote can't. <laughs> we can't do that. You know, you talk about, you know, getting scorched in social media. I think that would have been an all time favorite for certain people so uh (laughs) yes so it was it was understood that that needed to happen right you had a similar situation though because you had to follow you had to follow the indians though and i know working on that story with you there was points when it's like is this team ever going to lose am i ever going to be able to leave cleveland well well, i got the similar phone call to tim because i mean rolls downhill and so when his thing is falling apart that i think they start looking around like what are we going to (laughs) do i was in I was in Akron for – I was pulling for the Dodgers, too. I didn't even know it. I was uh, I was in Akron doing something different, and I was supposed to fly home on that Friday. And so I woke up at, I don't know, like, you know, I don't remember what time, 6.45, 7, and I looked over, and I had text messages from Paul Kicks, my editor, and that's never good. And I'm like – because he's not calling just to say, how you doing, buddy? You know, is everything all right? And so it was all like – you might need to go to Cleveland. We'll let you know. And I'm like, well, guys, I'm about to walk out of this hotel and go to the airport. So this is – you can't go to your 11 o'clock Bristol meeting and decide. I need to know now. And they were like, <laughs> yeah, you're going to Cleveland. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, so I drove up to Cleveland, I mean, you know, trying to – you know, I never heard of – most of the people on the team. It was pretty funny. I'm not the world's largest baseball fan, so, you know, I'm trying to Google while I drive, which is never a good idea, but, no, it's <laughs> straight to Cleveland. No, I can I can already see a consistent theme in these assignments because I feel like I got a similar phone call where it was kind of uh, 
my, my, my thought on the phone call was moments earlier they were in the office and they were like, who's dumb enough to go to, uh, to a hurricane ravaged city to report on a team he's never covered and file in a week. And I, I'm, I'm assuming everyone went, call Fleming, he'll do it. Call. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> the lesson young magazine writers is to never, ever be idle. Always have a story going that everyone's excited about. Because if you don't, if you're just sort of sitting around, you end up being like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, and they send you up the fucking river to go find the crazy person. That's what happens. <laughs> And those phone calls are like interventions, right? They're like, hold on, we're going we're gonna to conference you in. There's like four, or four editors in the meeting. And you're like, oh, this isn't good. If there's like four people and they're all trying to explain why you really need to do this, um, at some point you just kind of give in. And why it's good for you, right, Dave? Why it's, it's actually good for you. Oh, Yeah, this will be a great assignment. assignment. We spend a lot of time saying why you're the best person for this, when in reality we think, who's the person that we want to send into uh, a hurricane-ravaged area? Dave Fleming's the guy. He's the guy. He's got waiters. Um, well, in, in all these situations, so as we've established, you guys are basically you know, parachuting into various situations. In a situation like that, I keep using the word situation a little too much here, in a scenario like that, uh, what are the obstacles to getting access? Because obviously you've got to come into a clubhouse and trying to figure out who are the people you need to talk to right away, who's going to be the most important get. Uh, Dave, let's start with you. Oh, I, I, we should back up first, though, and say that even though, I mean, we're joking about sort of the way this all came together, I think every once in a while it's a great idea to, I don't want to do it every issue, but it's pretty cool to sort of kind of go like, uh, just tear up the whole thing and go, let's, let's rethink this in, in a week. Because in a way, it sort of streamlines all the decision-making. It streamlines all of your reporting decisions and all your writing decisions. And it's kind of like, let's just, we got to strip this thing down and just, and just uh, get it done in a week. So every once in a while, I think this is actually a great thing for the magazine and, and for this job. I might be in part to blame for this because I've been pushing for a couple of years, like to do one story a year where you just, we just pick a team. I did it with the Cowboys two years ago. And last year I did it with the Cubs where don't, there's no assignment. You're not saying profile this guy or write about this. Just go hang out with a team and ca try to capture the, the culture of, of the moment. And, and so that this year we decided to do the Dodgers and it sort of, it sort of steamrolled into this, uh, <laughs> I brought. There was collateral damage, apparently, judging by the conversation here. Um, and I think the, the question about dropping in somewhere and getting access—it was uh, the funniest part was when I had to go back because I had already sort of established relationships with players and coaches, and they knew what I was doing, and it was all this, you know, happy horse. You guys are great, and so then they'd lost, you know eight or nine in a row, and then here I am again. And they're all looking at me like, okay, we all know why you're here, right? Because we haven't seen your story, and we know that, that things have changed. So there were, there, were, there were a couple awkward moments in going back to guys and, and uh, saying, you know, that whole thing we talked about before apparently didn't hold up. <laughs> Did Were any of those yeah. guys blaming you in a funny way? Like, oh, way to go. Now, look, our, the, this guy's back, and, and he jinxed us. Actually, the, it was the other way around because I was there when they were good. So, like, a Cody Bellinger came up to me and said, oh, good, you're back. Maybe we'll start winning again. 
uh, <laughs> didn't really happen, but um, yeah, I, I kind of have a, at least within my family, sort of a reputation for jinxing teams and, and people that I write about. But uh, yeah, this was, this one was epic because I don't think anyone saw this coming to the degree that it, that it hit. I would have to say for me, it was, I've actually um, never covered major league baseball. I followed minor league teams and stuff like that. And I mean, I've written about playboy parties and musical chairs, world championships, but never uh, major league baseball. And so it does take, uh, even though you don't really have much time, it takes, uh, it takes a day or two to just understand how, uh, a major league baseball clubhouse works and when's the right time to get guys and, and how do you set things up? And, and is it okay to talk to guys after the game? Because a lot of times it's, that's half the battle, right? Just sort of getting a feel for the, uh, the ebb and flow of the, of the clubhouse and when's the best way to, to go after the information that you need. So that's what really, that's, that was the the hardest thing for me was to sort of, get to Houston and then sort of um, pretend like I, I knew exactly what I was doing inside a baseball clubhouse. I mean, that's where you talk about like, you know, all the years as a daily newspaper reporter. I mean, that was very helpful. I mean, I was, you know, a lot of time in the Royals. I used to work for the Kansas city star. So a lot of times in the Royal, a lot of time in the Royals clubhouse where they were losing a hundred games a year, which was like perfect clubhouse training. Cause you had to really figure out how to tiptoe around and so, I mean, like, like I got that call on Friday and, and, and to echo what uh, Dave said, I mean, we're making jokes, but these things are fun, you know, Justin, like, I mean, it, not for Tim who had to rip up his entire story, that's a nightmare. <laughs> but, but like parachute in, that's super fun. And so like, you know, show up on Friday, report Friday, Saturday, Sunday, go through your notes, transcribe Monday, write Tuesday, and it Wednesday, close Thursday. That's fun. And uh, so I liked that. And, you know, the clubhouse, you're getting no access. I mean, whatever myths either readers or even people in Bristol have about, you know, the magic of ESPN, that magic does not exist. I mean, there is, they don't give a And so. Right. You're just bursting the bubble here, man. You're giving away all the secrets. Well, you just do it seven minutes at a time at people's lockers. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's it. That's the deal. And it's just. Then you walk out of there and you realize all the stuff you forgot to ask. And so that, that leads your list for tomorrow. And, you know, four days later in the clubhouse, you sort of have a story. You know, I, I covered baseball as a beat writer in San Francisco for the Chronicle for four years back Ooh. in the early nineties to, to date myself. And so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in that environment. I, I sort of, you know, I, I kind of get what, what happens in there and, and, you know, where you can, where you can go and where you can't and all that stuff. Um, because there are like, like Dave says, I mean, there's some minefields. I mean, there are places that if you just stupidly walk into a wrong hallway, you can, you can really get your head chewed off. But, uh, you know, I, the thing that, that has changed so much is the access as Wright says, I mean, you, when I covered baseball, this is going to sound crazy, but the clubhouse stayed open until 45 minutes before game time. So the clubhouse was open for two hours and 15 minutes to three hours. And you could just be there. I mean, the guys would be out on the field taking BP and you'd be standing in the clubhouse, you know, looking at pictures in their locker. 
and and that wasn't necessarily a good thing. But you know, that what we have now is we have to get to a game like four hours before the game, and you get forty five minutes. And if the guy you want to talk to decides he's just going to go, you know, eat candy bars instead of come out of the out of the the training room, then you really are you have no chance. And it can take you sometimes three days to get five minutes with one guy, and that's the that that's a that can you know as fun as these stories are and i and i i did have to rip up a story but i didn't it wasn't a bad thing because i think the story that i ended up with had a little more tension and 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 was a better story but but yeah it, the getting the story has become very difficult in uh in baseball well let's stick with the locker room for for a minute though because one of the things that clubhouse. the clubhouse 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 <laughs> uh which is a, a shadow opponent, if I remember right, story correctly. Uh, we're in the clubhouse. Each of you, the work that you did in your stories is filled with the characters giving a sense of, of this place. And I'm wondering how each of you, looking through your notes, figuring out what you need for your story, zeroed in on what characters you wanted to use. You know, I'm thinking of things like, in the case of the Dodgers, you've got that great bit about watching the Bad News Bears with uh, with Puig. Um, right, you know, you've got Josh Tomlin and, and Cody Allen basically arguing about who throws harder. Um, and Flem, you know, Jose Altuve sitting in, in sort of like nervously watching Hurricane Irma coverage. Um, I, I'm just wondering how you guys figure out who's going to fit in here, who helps illustrate uh, these certain points in the story. And I'll start with uh, you, right? Well, I mean, some of it is. You know, you just spend all day hanging around, and you find the you write down everything, and then when it's time to go, you pick the best eight things. I mean, there's some of it that's just that. Uh, uh, in fact, I would argue that on a deadline like that, a lot of it is that. I mean, you're, <laughs> uh, you're just taking in everything you can because on Monday I need to sit down and figure out what I have. And so that was interesting too because I was I was on Monday and Tuesday while I was writing. Uh, I could go down in the clubhouse at four o'clock when it opened intentionally to fill holes, which is, you know, becomes hyper targeted. I mean, it, you know, you go in and I, I don't know, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I just go in and write down every single thing that happened and then figure out what it all, what to do with it later. Yeah. It's interesting when you mentioned the eight things, right. And I, I, I kind of approach it the same way where the time is so limited the first thing you want to do is just get eight things, right? And then it's almost like building a roster. You're constantly going, okay, I've got eight things. I actually have a story. The pages aren't going to be blank. Um, and now it's, now how can I, now I need to improve. Like now, now I need to find uh, four better things to replace the bottom four Correct. things in my, in my notebook. And it's, it's just this constant churning. And for me, it was about, um, finding and this I'm not even I sort of put all my eggs in one basket or a couple of baskets but it was about sort of finding two or three of the guys in the clubhouse who I thought could be thoughtful and uh, and go in depth about what the team had been through and so maybe avoiding the the typical names and sort of trying to figure out oh. by hanging out in the clubhouse who would be the go-to guys who could actually have a conversation about um, what the team had been through. And, and luckily I, I picked uh, two or three of the, the right guys. And I mean, the lucky, the, the good news about a baseball clubhouse is that it's not, there are no stars really. I mean, 
I mean, there are in the world, like in that ecosystem, but like everybody's just as good a voice as anyone else. I was laughing one day in the Indians clubhouse. I looked around and I'm like, man, Buster Olney is the most famous person in this room by an order of magnitude. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's not even close. Like it's weird too in a baseball in a baseball clubhouse. If for someone who covers a lot of NFL, I'm like, what? We get an hour a day, and I know a lot of those guys do hide out and get their hair cut and and sort of and and aren't in there. But it's still like, whoa, we like I get an hour of day to try and grab these guys, and then you can sort of catch them after the game if you have to, or coming off the field. And so in a weird way. I mean, the access is, is, is terrible, but it's still 100 times better than the NFL. It, it is. And I, I think, first of all, both, both of you guys, Dave and Wright, you guys did a great job sort of capturing the moments of these teams in very different circumstances. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the way that we sort of collect information, you know, I, I'm always sort of self-conscious because I'm standing in a clubhouse and I'm just scribbling away and, and all the other writers are just kind of looking at you like, what, what could you possibly be seeing right now? You know, like what, what are you, what's happening that I'm either I'm missing or, you know, are you crazy or, and um, because it's just a different job, you know, when you're a beat writer, you really don't care that, you know, Clayton Kershaw has his hair tied up in a little spout above his head, but you know, I'm, I'm like, shit, I might have to use that. You know, I don't know what I'm going to get. Um, so it's like, it's like what you guys are saying is it's just like you're throwing, you're throwing everything at it. You know, you, you really don't know what, what might end up being, you know, somewhat important or, or just oh. necessary down the line. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Dave, I love the way that you kind of flash between the scenes. You know, you sort of gave this, you know, literal 50,000-foot, you know, elevation look at, at the team and, and what they were dealing with, and then you found the right guys to sort of burrow down and, and get the ground-level look to. I thought I thought that in a short amount of time, knowing what went into it, I thought I thought that was, was awesome. And, uh, yeah, and I think, right, gosh, you got the clubhouse culture. Um, which is one thing I was thinking about with, with before we were talking is that these three teams, the Astros, Indians, and Dodgers are universally believed to be the most analytically advanced teams in baseball. I mean, they study the players are they're students of the game and they have so much information available and the people that run the teams are, are just number crazy. And yet none of these stories all these stories were human interest and they were, they were tapping into something that, you know, was, was almost, uh, you know, sort sort of mystical, you know, (laughs) what, how, how numbers have nothing to do with what we were writing about, you know, because the uh, numbers couldn't have predicted that the Dodgers were going to fall flat on their face. Numbers couldn't have predicted that the Indians were going to just go out of their minds for three weeks and nobody could, you know, numbers couldn't predict how, how a guy's going to, play when he's worried about whether his his kids are are you know swimming in their living room you know i think it's it's a it's kind of an interesting look at these teams that are so reliant on numbers and how things can just events and people can just take on a life of their own and throw all that out the window i mean it was interesting too i mean like dave i was curious i mean the thing i loved about your structure was dual narratives of the uh Storm and of Verlander and halfway through the story 
those things connected where the storm begins to influence the decision to get him. And like, I'm curious if, if you knew that was going to be there in the story when you started writing, or you just got there and realized that you were lucky. Well, you guys will love this, right? It's, um, I, I had never even, I wouldn't have known their GM if I had bumped into him literally coming out of the, the clubhouse. And, and that is essentially how we met in Seattle. Um, <laughs> he's coming out of the clubhouse. I'm coming in. I'm trying to rush him because I'm late to get there after the game. And we literally bump into each other, and I read his little ID tag, and I go, oh, hey, I've been trying to talk to you. Do you have five minutes? And within literally eight minutes of walking him out of the stadium um, is, is when he kind of uh, revealed all that stuff about the, the trade and about what he and the owner were thinking. And, um, and it was one of those things where it's just sort of, it's just dumb luck or serendipity or, or, or something and then it also happens that it's like, look, I've got, I probably have, I know going into it, I have eight minutes with this guy. So it's like, I'm not going to do any warm-up questions. It's like, how much did the storm influence you guys willing to go the distance and, and bring Verlander in? And um, he really responded to that kind of line of questioning. So again, it was like, I, we, then it, that's when you realize it's almost like you're back reporting in the way you described it, right? It's like you've got your stuff, and now I want to sort of drill down deeper, and now I realize there's a connection between the storm and the trade and the team, and it just sort of – it all was just sort of like uh, happenstance. Well, David, I, I was curious about that because it seems like there's ways that a story like that could fall into a cliche of, you know, how a team can give a city hope in a trying time, you know, something like that. Um, were you trying to sort of actively avoid some of the pitfalls around around that? I, I was because uh, halfway through the assignment, yeah, the editors really – and it is. It's easy when you're there and you see people suffering and you, you know what the town's going through. It's easy to get caught up in that emotional part of the story. And so I give, I give Neely and Ross and, and, and the other editors a lot of credit for sort of uh, adjusting my thinking halfway through because I was so sort of – it was so sort of like, let's just get, let's get into it. Let's, and let's just, uh, you know, run with it, this team for a week. And, and they were the ones who were really like, you know, this will come across as sort of cheesy and, and, and shallow. If we just do the typical, if we just do what everybody else is doing, which is, you know, Oh, the team's gonna, they're going to fight on for the city of, of Houston, which, there is some validity to that, but it doesn't work as well as, as yet the, the way we ended up connecting it to the actual baseball. So you're saying that things that get manufactured in uh, boardrooms with editors don't always uh, pan out in the way that we, uh, that you guys see them out in the real world. That's but uh, interesting. Also, sometimes rooms full of editors can keep you from falling victim to your own worst impulses. Would you like to explain? No, no, I mean, that never, ever happened ever in the history of the world. I just mean, you know, for like other people I've heard, a friend of mine once said that, well, no, I mean, it's in theory, like, I, in theory, you know, well, let's, guy I know well let's stay, me, let's stay on that though. Let's stay on that though. Like in, in all of your stories, obviously we got to think about space constraints. What are the things that, that you guys had to cut that you had to get rid of the thing that you really wanted to keep in? 
that just that couldn't last in a final version. Right, I'm going to start with you here. I'm trying to think. I mean, it was such a fire drill. Like Dave said, you just first want to get the eight things, and then you start replacing them with better things. And then you get to the end, you're like, God, I can't believe I was going to put that other thing in the story like three days ago. And so it, it's just very much like, you know, the arc is pretty settled within a couple of days. And so I, I was very much reporting to the, you know, the last two days were reporting to the to the story itself. So it wasn't so much as things that I that I wanted to get in. It was I they were things that were weak examples of things that I wanted to replace with better examples. So it was more like it was more like, you know, active rewriting while it was going down. So it was like, you know, I need a better, you know, example A of this. I can tell you one of the things I, I thought was really interesting that we just it just didn't work in the story. But um, if I had more time and, and uh, more space, I was fascinated by the way the team guilt was really the, the feeling and the emotion that is powering the Astros. They, they all there's like a sense of survivor's guilt that they weren't really there when the when the storm hit. Not, very few of them suffered any property damage and 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 then the other guys who had family they weren't there to sort of help them or protect them and it's just something you never experience uh sort of deep true emotions or you never get to see that really a lot in in professional sports um and and then the fact that it was guilt uh i was fascinated by that but we just didn't it just didn't fit with the story it's funny you say that, Dave, because I got glimpses of that, actually. You know, I mean, in, in the way that you reported the scenes themselves, I, I got that from Altuve and, and from other guys that their, that guilt was, was, was actually sort of latent in the story. And it was, you know, so you, you, you did it without knowing it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, right? It's something you just, maybe I'm too cynical, but you just don't associate, you feel like, uh, uh, professional athletes are so far removed from, uh, you know, from something or, or uh, they're sort of above these kind of emotions. And so it was, it was kind of refreshing in a way to see them humanized. It's interesting too, that, you know, when you go to these towns, when this is happening, I mean, the athletes almost never actually live in the town. And when they like, or excuse, they're not citizens of it. I mean, they live in the facility and then they leave in the off season or, you know, they live out in some weird suburb where, you know, like, like when the saints were right after Katrina sort of, you know, one of the things that was interesting is the team made a concerted effort to live in town, like different Reggie Bush did. And the crazy tight end, his name, I can't remember. And uh, Jeremy Shockey and Drew Brees lives in the neighborhood but, like, I think one of the reasons that when you ask athletes to comment on ongoing sort of disasters in the places where they play, the reason they're so inarticulate is that while they have a sense that something is going on, they really don't live in the place, and so they don't know. And so the lack, the inability to articulate is sort of directly related to the fact that they don't live in Houston any more than I do. Well, part of the reason Jeremy Shockey doesn't show a lot of emotion is he drank like 11 Bud Lights during a half an hour interview the last time I talked to him. Oh, my oh, so that God. Might have something. <laughs> I mean, that's like, is the, hey, is, is the way Boggs 
Tim, is the Wade Boggs drinking story for those stories? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you read about those. There's that they were on. It's all. It's like it's sunny in Philadelphia, whatever that show is. And there was one about Wade Boggs drinking like a 97 beers. I don't. I just some of those things are amazing. They can't possibly be true. Yeah, I think the Wade Boggs one probably took on a life of its own. But I think there's a kernel of truth in there. I think the guy just pounded. I think he was a Bud Light guy too, right? Oh, God. They're millionaires for crying out loud. I know. I know. Uh, all right, guys. I'm going to pull Dude. this back into focus uh, for our last question. Oh, I can I? Hey, Justin, I had one thing I just wanted to add. Sure. So there was, um, there was a phrase in Tim's story um, that made me think of something I had left out of, I had to leave out of my story. When you described their, the, the, the locker room as underwater quiet, I just thought that was so... It was like in two words, just perfectly describing what those, what the clubhouses feel like after, after a loss. And uh, the Astros, they lost their first game, I think, in six games when I was in Oakland. And there was, you talk about stuff you scratch into your notebook, but they, it was so quiet inside their clubhouse after the game that you could, they were all eating salad after the game. That was their the buffet. Um, and they were all having salad, and you could—it was so quiet—you could hear them sort of munching um, uh, on their salad. And I thought, oh, that's yeah. You know, it, getting back great. to the, the idea, Justin, if I could get thirty seconds about what was left out, yeah. it's kind of—it's it, kind of like the things that we fall in love with. You know, I lost about—I <laughs> lost about a thousand words on Chris Taylor, who's this player for the Dodgers this year, who came out of nowhere. He was a Classic 4A player, which means, you know, not good enough for the big leagues and too good for AAA and, and for his whole career. And this year, he's just been this revelation. And he had this swing change. He had these that the, the completely revitalized his career. And I was talking to one of the beat writers, and he said, I said, you know, who, who did he work with? And the guy was like, well, you know, these, they don't let, they won't let, make them available. They're these two guys, and I don't even know their names, but they, they're like these sort of mystical creatures. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, the, the team won't let these guys be interviewed. So I kind of mentally said, you know, challenge accepted. And I found these guys. And, I, and I, <laughs> one of them is this 71-year-old guy who works, was working with the single-A team out in Rancho Cucamonga during one of my visits to L.A. So I tracked him down, and I went out, and I, and I, t- I spent like a whole day with this guy. And he was fascinating. And he's telling stories about, you know, the, the path of the samurai sword and how they were taught to go through three warriors. You know, the path of the, of the sword, the handle always was followed by the blade. And, and the God, three they warriors. God, the samurai sword? Oh, oh my <laughs> God. Well, I think we might resurrect it for a, for a separate little story on Taylor later. Oh, but yeah. it was like. When Rachel Ulrich, my editor, called me and said, God, we're going to have to lose Taylor. And she was just like, I could sense her like closing her eyes and bracing herself for my response because the samurai sword was, you know, the three warriors in baseball are the fastball, the slider, and the changeup. And you oh. go through each, you know. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was the only thing that sort of took us outside of the, of the clubhouse, which I oh. understood the reason for it, but. But it was like, you know, you talk about just those things that you, uh, you know, as writers, we fall in love with our own, oh, our own man. ideas sometimes. And 
That was a tough one. I, I miss Chris Taylor. I'm, I'm imagining well, you like driving out to Joshua Tree and like finding this guy somewhere, like doing peyote. Like, That's amazing. You and Jim Morrison out <laughs> with the peyote. <laughs> I mean, I've seen I've seen Kill Bill. I know how many editors I can cut through with a samurai sword. And it's more than three. <laughs> Give me you get the fastest sword. one first. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, I'm starting with Paul Kicks. Give me a Hanzo sword. I mean, he's a big, big storm guy, so maybe he counts for like one and a half. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get back to the subject of uh, of ending these stories. And in each case, obviously, the season's still going on, and you got to put a pin in it somewhere. Uh, but it also feels like these stories are sort of like trying to hit the head of a pin on the side of a bus that's going 50 miles an hour. Uh, I'm wondering how each of you decided on where your story needs to be needed to be capped off and um, sort of what decision-making process you used in doing that. I'll start with you, Dave. Yeah, we, I really struggled with this because there's no natural arc for, especially there, there was no end to, they were still on the road. Um, they had started losing in Oakland inexplicably and it was kind of like there's no natural arc to this it would have been great if after a week they had gone back to houston or something like that and um it was only when we realized uh almost after writing the first draft that we you know we connected the team to the storm to to the to the trade and then there was a natural ending when we realized that verlander you know took the mound in the middle of uh the wildfires in, in Washington. And there was actually like little flakes of ash coming down on the field while he was pitching. And we were like, okay, well there's our ending. Um, but yeah, we didn't, I didn't see it right away um, until the, the second draft. Tim, what about you? I mean, the, the Dodgers, obviously their fortunes seem to be shifting on a, on a consistent basis. You know, it looked like they might never lose. Then they look like they might never win again. Then they, they took a game, but for you, how did you figure out where you, where you were going to bring that in for a close? Yeah, the, the the whole, you know, that was one of the the parts that just had to be completely scrapped. I mean, the, the ending had to be completely redone. And, and I think that, you know, I just I kind of went in with the when I went back to sort of chronicle the, the misfortune after the after the good fortune, I, I, I kind of looked at I, I had sort of looked at how it looks and feels and you know what it sounds like when a team is is rolling and so I kind of went back with that same idea like what's this look like feel like sounds simple but you know that that was the observational side of it um and then you know I, I happened to be there in San Francisco when they broke their 11 game winning streak which allowed me that gave me uh that gave me some some thread inside the story I could sort of go back to that scene a couple times because it really did feel like even though it was just one game, it felt the sense of relief felt like an ending, you know, and, and, you know, getting back to, to what Dave and and Wright were talking about, how you find a guy that can sort of be your tour guide, as I put it in a clubhouse and sort of give you sort of the stuff that, um, that you, you might not get from other guys. And it's crazy to me that it became a 22 year old Cody Bellinger because he, after that game, he was telling me about uh, when we got in here, Puig was dancing on the couch and you know, that all this stuff that was going on, that was, that, that seemed made it seem bigger than just one game. Um, but 
you know, just the end, I kind of, I, I maybe, I don't know if I took kind of a cheap way out, but it was like the, the only thing I could think of was that sort of like nothing means anything, you know, like how did the, <laughs> you can't really, you, you have, they had no idea what was coming next. You know, that was the, the, after what they'd been through, there was no way, there's no way to predict it. So there was no way to close the ending um, because of what had come before. So um, it's in a weird way. I felt like I wrote my ending throughout the whole story, you know, <laughs> just by, by the, the observations and the, the, you know, the quotes and the scenes that, that had come before it. And don't you guys think that we, for, for once, sometimes we get way too caught up in the fact that the magazine closes and there's still a week or whatever before it will sort of be out and will the story hold. And, and, and I always feel like it's like, well, who cares? You know what I mean? It's like, just write what happened. And if people are like, Oh, you wrote the Dodgers kept winning and they lost five games since then. It's like, well, who cares? We, we, we can't predict the future. And I think for once I the, the way Tim described it is, is, and I think everybody at the magazine too, was just like, look, the whole, the whole point of this package is nobody really from day to day knows what the hell's going to happen. Um, and that's kind of what's so great about it. Um, and, and so we were freed from having to make these big, draw these big conclusions. I think it was just kind of like, look, today's the end of the eighth day and here's what happened. And uh, who knows what will happen tomorrow. Yeah. And I agree. And I think that sometimes, you know, we, we struggled with when to go out and hang out with the Dodgers to sort of provide this snapshot in time. And it seemed like mid August was, you know, was going to be a good time to, uh, you know, to just capture what they were. And I, the problem came that they're, if they had just been 500 after that, the first story I wrote would have been fine. You know, it would have been like, Hey, remember what, you know, the Dodgers were so good and they're looking to be so good in October. Um, just the, the, the sheer magnitude of their collapse made it impossible to say, you know, that, 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 that was the only way that I would have had to go out and rewrite was a, was a, a collapse of that magnitude. So um, I was, I was on board with the idea that we had to, uh, we had to redo that, but I, I do agree that we do get caught up in, Oh, what's going to, we hold our breath for those four or five days or week that, you know, the, the mag closes and then it, and then, you know, people see it. So um, we can't get too tied up in that. And I, I do think, that was one of the things I thought, right, that was so great about where you put this in your story was, and I forget the guy now, the, the, the guy from the Indians, at near the end of your story, he started talking about the fraction of an inch of a bat swing that cost them yeah. the World Series. And in a way, it was like this guy, this great insight from this guy sort of explained the whole package, which is, I mean, on a fraction of an inch, the whole issue changed within a week. So I thought that was great the way that that led to the ending of your story. Well, the the streaks or the all these things are so interesting because, I mean, what they do is expose the truth that all athletes spend, you know, reams of psychic energy and millions of dollars denying, which is nobody really has control over anything, and we're all just animals on a rock, and like it's really interesting when something like this happens, and it it starts to tear at the sort of fragile myth they've constructed around the things they do. And I, I love to watch that and see how people try to sort of protect this thing that allows them the psychic and 
emotional freedom to actually go try to be great. And, and it, there's another aspect to it, right, where the, the way that they couch it on the, the – it's the genesis of the one day at a time theory. You know, like they, they don't – Correct. It's almost like if you touch it, you might break it, right? I mean, that's the feeling I got from your story with the Indians is that they might have said that they kind of had a, an idea of what, you know, all the preparation that went into this and all that. But, they, I mean, they're, they're also setting up shrines, right? I mean, they're, they're doing exactly. stuff that is so far outside – rational thought that it just gives them a little bit of a, it gives you a little glimpse into the, to the reality of it, which is exactly what you said, animals on a rock, which I love. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, being here today and talking about your stories. Right. Tim and Dave, thank you so much. Absolutely. It was fun. My pleasure. I wish we would have had more time to talk about samurai editors, but maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again to Tim Kume, Dave Fleming, and Wright Thompson for coming by the show today to talk about their stories. For more of the MLB playoff coverage, you can go to ESPN.com, and you can find their stories on ESPN.com slash Double Truck. If you like what you're hearing, please take a minute to subscribe to the Double Truck Stories podcast on whatever podcast player is your favorite. That'd be much appreciated. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. We'll be back again soon with more stories. I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.